Hello and welcome to this episode of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. This is a different kind of episode. I'm actually going to replay my interview with Tommy John in just a bit, but I did want to answer one quick email before I did that. I got an email from Dave S., and Dave S. is wondering if the Red Sox win the World Series, if Dave Dombrowski will make the Hall of Fame. And I thought that was an interesting question. I get a lot of emails about what players may end up in Cooperstown, but not so many about non-players, about front office executives, or about managers in general. So I looked at this, and I was looking at Dombrowski, and I actually think the answer is yes. I think if the Red Sox win, it will all but seal his Hall of Fame case. Well, first of all, to get in as an executive, you need to win. So for all of the really good executives that haven't won, that's just not going to fly. And whether that's fair or not, that's just reality. If you don't win a World Series, at least one, you're not going to get in. So Billy Bean, probably the most famous front office executive in baseball, he's not going to get in. Theo Epstein, he's already in. He's going to have to write his Hall of Fame speech at some point. I think Brian Cashman will too. Brian Cashman, I think, may not get in right away whenever he's first eligible, but I do think he will get in. I think Dombrowski is next in line. Dombrowski now has built up four teams. He built up those Expos teams in the early 90s. He's built up the Marlins team that won a World Series. I know they tore it down, but still, he was there when they won. He was their general manager. Then he went to Detroit, and he took over a team that was really bad, and he made it a perennial contender for about a decade. I know they didn't win the World Series there, but he did make a lot of significant moves and put their pieces together, really, for their duration of their championship run, whether it be the draft or by trade or by free agent signings. He really did a good job with those Detroit teams, and now he comes to Boston, and he did inherit a lot in Boston. He inherited Betts and Bogarts, obviously. But he made some key acquisitions that put this team where they are now. He got Sale, Kimbrell, J.D. Martinez, even David Price. All of those players are on the roster because of Dombrowski. I think if the Red Sox win here, Dombrowski's going to get in. He's going to get credit for building up four different teams, two of which won a World Series, and another who came very close. So I do think he's next in line after Theo and after Cashman. Others that may have a chance in general... I think Sandy Alderson has a chance. He built up those great A's teams of the 80s. Those teams probably underachieved when they were playing. They won one World Series. I think they probably could have won two or three. They're remembered now more for being a team full of steroid guys. I think that will probably hurt Alderson. I don't know how much of that is his fault, how much he knew or didn't know, but I think that will hurt him. He did win the one World Series in 89 with those A's teams. And then he, uh, he did get there with the Mets a few years ago when they lost to the Royals. Alderson has a chance. There's a lot of people in the game that like Sandy Alderson as well. Uh, my guess is he does not get in. He was also one of the figures involved in the collusion scandal in the 80s. He was a general manager then. He was reporting information to other general managers. I don't know how much that will hurt him. It certainly didn't hurt Bud Selig, but my guess is Sandy does not get in. Brian Sabian, he's won three World Series. He probably should get a lot more consideration than he will eventually get. Something tells me he's not going to get in. I'm actually curious how this Giants team 
ends up being remembered in history, the Giants that won three World Series, and how they end up being represented in Cooperstown when this is all done. I do think Bochi will get in as the manager. That's a different story. We can do a manager thing on a different podcast. I do think Bochi will get in as a manager because I think he consistently had teams that overachieved their preseason projections. And all three World Series teams did that. And I think a lot of credit, when that happens, goes to the manager. I don't know if that's right. Maybe the projections were just wrong. But still, Bochi will get in. I don't think Sabian will. I'm curious what players will get in from that team as well. I think Posey has the best chance. But he's tailed off. And Bumgarner's been hurt the last two years. So Lincecum fell off a cliff. Kane fell off a cliff. Those guys aren't getting in. Really, your best chance there is with Posey and with Bumgarner. Bumgarner's now going to have to pitch well late into his mid-30s, even with his postseason narrative. Posey, I do think, will get there. Bochi, I think, will get there. And that's about it. I don't think Sabian's going to get in. I'm not sure that's fair, but I do think that's the reality. One quick thing before I get to the Tommy John interview. Someone emailed me recently asking if I'll be doing more interviews with writers this year talking about their Hall of Fame ballots during Hall of Fame season. Absolutely. That's one of my favorite times of the year to do the podcast is during Hall of Fame season. That's one of my favorite things to do is having writers on and having them discuss their ballots. So yes, I do plan on doing that as we get into Hall of Fame season. For me, it's always Hall of Fame season. I love it. I'm also excited about the start of the World Series tonight as well. Here's my interview with Tommy John. It was originally recorded on July 1st, 2015. John signed with the Indians right out of high school. He was 18 years old. He signed in 1961. I started the interview by asking him what kind of stuff he had and what pitches he was throwing as an 18-year-old kid. The same pitches I threw when I was a 46-year-old has-been. I threw a fastball and a curveball. That's all I threw for all the years I was in baseball. I could never learn a slider, and I never learned a changeup until I was 46, and truthfully, by then, my changeup was my fastball, so it didn't make any difference. But that, that's the truth. I, I mean, that, that's a God's honest truth. I had two pitches. I threw low and away, curveball, like a backdoor curveball, curveball, low and in, and then I come inside with the fastball to keep you honest. But that's, that's all I threw, and you can do that if you could make the pitches all the time. And how did you learn how to throw the curveball initially? I bought a book when I was a little boy. I uh, collected bottles and turned them in and uh, made enough money to buy a book called How to Pitch by Bob Feller. And, um, I, you know, and I was there, I was reading it. And so my dad and I were playing catch in the backyard, and I threw a spun a little curveball up there, and my dad dropped his jaw, you know, and he went, whoa, 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 what's that? I said, well, I learned it in the book today. No, 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 no. He said, we aren't going to throw those. So when I got to be about 14, um, my freshman year in high school, um, my dad took me up to um, a friend of ours who had played professionally with the Philadelphia Philly organization. And um, he showed me how the Phillies taught him to throw a curveball. And he showed me and I gripped it and I threw one pitch and he and the guy said, well, wait a minute, have you been working on this? And I said, no, I, you know, I spun him, but no, I've never thrown any. And he said, that's perfect. So 
it was like the first four or five times I threw a curveball, I had a curveball. And when I signed out of high school, Cleveland Indians signed me on my curveball in hopes that my fastball would get better as I got bigger and stronger. So the same grip that you were throwing and when you were first learning the curveball, the same grip when you were 18 years old and you're drafted, is that the same grip, the same pitch that you were throwing when you were 46? That's it. Same one. Although I wasn't drafted back then. Oh, that's right. It was, uh, everybody was a free agent. And, um, the, you know, the draft was, was brought in because the owners wanted to keep themselves from spending money. They couldn't do it on their own, so they have to. They had to institute rules. In fact, every rule that's ever been brought about in baseball that has to do with contracts and signing and everything has been by the owners for the owners to keep the owners from spending money. That's right. And the draft in no sport has anything to do. It has nothing to do with competitive balance. It's one hundred percent about keeping salaries down. Exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah. It's. Uh, and I I was looking on Facebook, and uh, one of the guys, I think he might have been one of the first drafted ball players, a guy named Rick Reichert out of University of Wisconsin. And I think he signed for $125,000 or $150,000. And I remember uh, reading, oh, my God, if we keep going like this, we're going to be bankrupt. And this was back, uh, I don't know when it was. But I remember Reichert because um, I I faced him when uh, in the uh, in the new uh, Angel Stadium he had a home run. In fact, I threw up the first home run ever hit out of Angel Stadium to Rick Reichert. <laughs> now, when you were a kid, you were also a star basketball player in high school. Was basketball something you thought you could have pursued professionally, or were you always focused on becoming a baseball player? Well, I was a stud basketball player, not a star. I was a stud. <laughs> uh, <laughs> now, basketball was, you know, in Indiana, basketball is like if you live in Utah, you better be a Mormon. In Indiana, you better be a basketball player. That's just the way it is. And um, I, I love basketball. I, I love playing. I love competing it, uh, in it. And I played basketball much like I pitched. I, you know, I knew what I was good at. I knew what I was poor at. And I never got myself into situations where, um, you know, I couldn't compete. But I knew that a six foot three white guy that can't jump isn't going to go very far in basketball. That I can tell you. Were you recruited by Kentucky? Yes. Was that tempting? I was recruited by I, I was recruited by Kentucky. I was recruited by Indiana. I was recruited by Louisville. I was recruited by Michigan. I was recruited by Michigan State. I was recruited by the Naval Academy, North Carolina, North Carolina State, Florida. I had fifty scholarship offers in basketball, and I had one scholarship offer in baseball. You're a star athlete in high school, or a stud athlete, as you say. You get signed by the uh, Cleveland Indians. You're 18 years old. What are your expectations of yourself at this point? You're just a kid. You're 18 years old. What are your expectations as to what your career should be as an 18-year-old? I had no ideas. I, I, I had never been away from home a day in my life without my mom and dad. And my mom and dad put me on an airplane to go from Terre Haute to Chicago, Chicago to 
Dubuque, Iowa, and that was going to be my first city that I played uh, ball in. And I had no idea what was in store. All I know was I loved to pitch, and I loved to play baseball, and I loved to be out on the baseball field. And one thing my dad told me when I left, he said, you know, you may be in this game a month, you may be in it 10 years. Uh, who knows? He said, just remember who you are and where you come from. And he said, you'll, you'll do fine. And the other thing he taught me is never be afraid to ask questions. Always ask questions. That's, that's how you learn. And, um, so, I mean, I got to be a pain in the behind because I'd ask people, you know, how do you, how do you throw a curveball? How do you do this? How do you throw a slider? What? And I couldn't throw it, but if you gather information and then, uh, when I coached, that's all I, all I did is I put out information for the kids and they could choose to accept it or turn it down. And if they turned it down, then I'd try and get more information to them, more information. And maybe sometimes something would click and, oh, yeah, I understand that. But I didn't know. I, I just knew that I wanted to, that, that I was doing something I always wanted to do as long as I was there. And that was um, to play baseball. You keep saying you couldn't throw a slider. Had you tried many times and failed? Was there something about the grip or the spin? Why couldn't you throw that properly? I don't think that if you throw a good curve ball, you can throw a good slider. I think um, if you, in fact, I know that uh, Don Sutton had one of the best curve balls I've ever seen. One of the best curve balls I have ever seen. And he picked up a slider to help him, you know, to throw the ball over the plate on a 2-0, a 3-1 count. You don't want to throw a fastball. And he had a big curve ball. And all of a sudden, the more he threw the slider, the sloppier his curveball got. And most guys, if they can't throw, a, if, if they have a curveball and they start throwing the slider, their slider becomes big and their curveball becomes small and they actually became, become almost one and the same, uh, more of a slurve type pitch. I, I, it's totally different throwing, and um, I could never pick it up. I know Johnny Sane tried to teach me to throw a slider and throw a slider and throw a slider and I could never do it. And I satisfied him by um, dropping down a little on my curveball and throwing it harder and it cut the breakdown. And when I did that, Johnny was happy and said, that's it. That's it. That's, that's what I'm trying to get, get you to do. And, uh, but I could never do it. You eventually worked your way through the Indian system pretty quickly. You played on their MLB team for a few years before they traded you to the White Sox. What's going through your head at this point when you find out you've been dealt? Did you feel like the organization that signed you as an amateur gave up on you? No. Um, I've always looked at trades as the team. There's a team out there that, that doesn't want you, but there's a team out there that does want you. And I look at it as a positive. I'm going from a team that says, eh, you know, maybe Tommy doesn't have what we're looking for, but I'm going to a team that says, hey, we traded some good players for this guy, so they want you. And that's the way I've looked at every trade that I was ever in. It's a positive, not a negative. And do you find that when you go into a new organization, you're working with new coaches, that everyone now is, is trying to tinker with you or trying to change your approach or your mechanics at all? 
back in those days, um, pitching coaches were not as well versed uh, in the mechanics of the game. Cleveland had a pitching coach named Mel Harder, and Mel didn't touch me at all. He just said, kid, you're throwing the ball good. Just keep throwing it. And then we had early win that didn't teach anything and uh, went to the White Sox, and we had a pitching coach name of Ray Berries. Ray was a catcher. He had, you know, he had never pitched, but he had caught good pitchers. And his whole thing was when your front foot hits, your arm has to be up ready to throw. And then you can throw fastball, curveball, slider, change up. And, and you get the ball out of your glove early. The earlier you get the ball out of your glove, the quicker your hand, your arm rotates up on top. And that's all he ever said. Get your arm up, get your arm up, stay back, boom, throw, you know, and never messed with anything other than make sure that my hand was up every time I threw. And when I did that, I pitched well. Did you find that because you were a never guy that lit up radar guns, you weren't throwing 95, does that cause more people to try and mess with you? When you're throwing 95, do you think that people tend to leave you alone more? Well, thank God, um, before my surgery, before 1974, I, I never saw a radar gun until 1975. So, and like I said, thank God, because the radar gun has taken pitching out of pitching. And it's, ta- it, it's brought in throwing. And guys, now you, you got to throw harder. You got to throw hard, throw harder. So the kids are just out there throwing as hard as they can. Uh, and when I was coming up through, it, it made no difference how hard you throw, if or you threw. Um, if you got batters out, you were good. If you didn't get batters out, you weren't very good. And that's that was the that was the uh, pitching. Uh, modus operandi is that you get batters out, you can pitch. You don't get batters out, you're home selling used cars on your uncle's lot. And I, and, and I really believe that they would go back to that theory today, that they would have better pitchers, they would have more strikes, you would have faster games, uh, you would have pitchers that, uh, you know, Clayton Kershaw doesn't light it up. I mean, you know, he, he throws a couple up there, 94 or five, but he pitches down in the zone, comes inside. He's got that awesome curveball, And I think if you, if you pitch in and out and back of the plate to the front of the plate, meaning changing speeds, you'll be fine. Early on in your career, you had struggled with command a bit. How did you eventually learn how to command the plate? So uh, practice more. Uh, I was always of the opinion uh, there was only so many bullets in your gun. And the more you threw, the more bullets you used up. I I was, that's, I, and when I hurt my arm and I was coming back, the only way we knew how to get your arm strengthened was to throw a baseball. And so I, I threw a baseball six days a week off the mound to a catcher. And I found the more I threw, the better my arm felt. And from 1975, until I quit in 1989, every time I was on the field, spring training to the end of the season, I threw every day off the mound to a catcher. Now, I didn't pitch, but I threw, and I found out the more I practiced throwing the ball low and away, low and away, low and away, low and away, the better I could throw the ball low and away. 
take me to 1968, commonly referred to as the year of the pitcher. You had one of your best seasons in 68. What was different about that year for you? I think at the All-Star break, I was like 8-0, and 8-0, 9-0, something like that. And I'd started like 16, 17 games. Uh, it just seemed like every game I went out, if I pitched bad, the other team didn't pit, uh, didn't hit very well. And if I pitched good, the other team didn't hit very well. And um, I came back after the All-Star break, and I was 5-5. Five and five, And then I got into uh, an altercation on the field with Dick McAuliffe. And he, he ran his knee into my shoulder, and uh, I separated my left shoulder, my pitching shoulder, and I was out for the rest of the year. And I was 10-5 and five at the time, and I was fifth in the American League in ERA with 196. Fifth with 196. Yeah, did you feel like the raised mound was a huge advantage? No. The good pitchers got guys out on the raised mound and the good pitchers got guys out on the lower mound. Um, if, if they wanted to bring pitching back, yeah. If, if you threw off a 10 foot mound, you know, people say, Oh, wow. It would make, you know, you had that downward angle. Well, it's tougher to throw the ball. There was good, good pitchers will find a way to get hitters out. Even if you're throwing off a, off a flat mound. How would you prepare for a start? And what kind of information did you get from coaches about an opposing lineup in the 60s? And did that type of information change the longer you stayed in the league? I would hate to be pitching now with all the computerization of, of what's out there. Uh, you know, well, this guy is, uh, hits 410 on 3-1, and, he, uh, and when the count's 3-1, he hits this much off fastballs, and he hits this much off curveballs. They put too much information out there, and too much information blogs your uh, or bogs your mind down. And we we had scouting reports back then. We'd have an advanced guy going around, but it was it was sophomoric at, at best. High, tight, low and away, when in doubt, curving. And um, I I we had a scouting report uh, 1980. I was pitching against Baltimore in Yankee Stadium, and our pitching coach was Stan Williams. And Stan was going to, um, he was going over the Baltimore lineup, and every one, oh, he's a dead fastball hitter, dead fastball hitter. You, you gotta, you gotta make him hit the breaking ball. You, he's a dead fastball hitter. You gotta make him hit the breaking ball. Oh God, he ripped him. Oh, he's a dead fastball hitter. You got to make him hit the breaking ball. So when they got done with all that drivel, I went up to the manager, Dick Hauser, and I said, Dick, I, I can't pitch tonight. And he looked, he said, why? What's wrong? And I said, well, that scouting report, everybody over there is a fastball hitter. Dick, I'm going to throw 90% fastballs. I've, I've got no chance. I can't pitch tonight. <laughs> and he laughed and he said, he said, that was crazy, wasn't it? And I said, I think we'd be better off if we just shut in up and let the pitchers go to their See, the scouting reports, this is what you can't throw a hitter. Don't tell me what I can't throw somebody. Tell me what I can throw somebody. I don't want to hear the negative. I want to hear the positive. Um, I was with the Dodgers. Dave Kingman. Oh, my God, Dave Kingman, you can't do this. Oh, my God. And I went out and I pitched against the Giants, and I I 
poop the bed. I mean, it, it was bad. And we never had a scouting report read to the pitchers after that game. Our pitching coach was a guy named Red Adams. And Red went up to Walt Alston, and he and I talked about it in the bullpen. Um, and he said that was the worst. I almost pulled you out of there because all it was doing was filling your mind with negative thoughts. And I said, you're absolutely right. And I pitched negatively and pitching positively. And I, I just think, you know, you know what you're good at. You know what you're poor at. Go with what you're good at. Would you call your own game or would you let the catchers call the game? I let the catchers. That's why I I, I had to have a good catcher. So somebody that understood the way I pitched and the way I like to pitch. You know, most catchers, we would get... Um, after Munson died, we got Cerrone in there. Rick was a good catcher. Then we brought Johnny Oates in. Johnny Oates was an outstanding catcher, outstanding. And then we started bringing in the, um, I can't even think of their names now, but they were, they were hitters rather than catchers. Catching was something they did between at-bats. Butch Weiniger, Mark Hassey, uh, these guys, they, they just put down one and there was no thought process. Then all of a sudden I got, you know, I was with the Dodgers and I had Jaeger and Ferguson. They, they were good catchers. Like I said, I threw two pitches. They would put down fastball away. If I didn't want to throw it, I, as soon as I saw that finger go down, I started to pitch and if it wasn't what I wanted. I'd shake my head and I would throw the curveball. And, um, you know, I mean, I, it, I, I was easy, really. Uh, you just had to know, actually, you just watch the batter. And if you see the batter starting to go out on the plate to cover that ball low and away, then you either throw breaking ball in or fastball in. I mean, it's, it's not, it's not rocket science. It's just the catcher's job is to get the pitcher through his pitching time on the mound. And, a lot of catchers don't like to do that. They, you know, they, they want to hit and catching is, Oh my God, I got to go out there and do this. And I couldn't pitch to guys like that. I just, I couldn't do it. I did it, but I didn't do it very effectively. Let's jump ahead to 1974. It's a year that changed your life. It really changed the game forever. Tell me when you first started to feel pain or discomfort in your elbow. When I was 13 years old. Really? Prior to 74, were you in pain after every start? No, um, I, I was fine. I went from little league distance to major league distance, and I my elbow got tender, and I never pitched when I was 13. And then I, I pitched, you know, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. Then we got into um, pro ball, and we're pitching every four days. And I never really, I never really pitched that much. And in 1962, I started noticing my arms started getting a little tender, but not a lot. But back then, back then, you didn't go to the trainer. Oh, my elbow, my my elbow hurts. Oh, we're going to get an, an MRI. There, there weren't MRIs. And most of the trainers we had in the minor leagues were veterinarians or something. I don't know. We had one guy that was our bus driver that served as our trainer <laughs> and you know, they couldn't do anything. Maybe they could tape an ankle up or we had one trainer that rubbed me down before a start and put some hot stuff on me. 
and he put it on my right arm. He forgot I was a left-handed pitcher, so I just went out there and I threw, and I my right arm was burning. My left arm felt felt pretty good, but and then as I came back in '63, I started throwing, and uh, our general manager with the Charleston Ball Club, Charleston, West Virginia, said, um, you know, I I think it would help your uh, development within the organization if you would go to Puerto Rico this winter and pitch. Okay. So I went down there and I probably shouldn't have done it. And, um, my elbow hurt. I mean, it hurt after every game It hurt before, but while I was pitching, it felt okay. The pain would go away or you would get used to the pain. Um, then I threw a game. I I threw a shutout against Iaquez, and the next morning I got up, and I couldn't move my arm, and I go to the ballpark, and I, now I had to tell somebody, and they sent me to a therapist down in Puerto Rico, and uh, it was terrible, but, um, uh, and then Cleveland sent me home, and they set up an appointment with the uh, trainer with the St. Louis Cardinals, and he set up an appointment with the, with the orthopedic for the Cardinals, and simply the Cardinals, because it was a two-hour drive from home, and I could go over there. And uh, November 22nd, 1963, when John F. Kennedy was getting killed in Dallas, I was getting my first cortisone injection in my elbow. Between that date and July 17th, 1974, I probably had 50 cortisone injections in my elbow. And every time my elbow would hurt, I'd find a doctor that would inject me. And because I wanted to pitch. And like I said, you didn't go in with every little alley. Oh, I got a hangnail. I can't. Well, well, let's go see the manicurist and she'll take care of it, Tommy. Now, you just, you know, you you sucked it up, tighten your belt up and you pitched. And um, so I had 50, um, at least 50. And when I told Dr. Job this, you know, we, we were talking about my problems after he says, "Oh my God!" He said, "It's a wonder that your that your ligament didn't didn't go earlier, you know, because they were just starting to find out how bad cortisone and steroids were for you in in a joint, you know, because even Doctor Job injected me three, four times, five times a year uh, on my elbow, you know, but that's the way medicine was practiced back then." In July of 1974, you've gone through seemingly almost a decade of cortisone shots. Your arm has been bothering you at different times, but you still pitch through it. You felt something that said, I can't pitch through this. What were you feeling then? <laughs> there was only one pain I've ever had worse than the pain I had in my elbow on that one pitch in 74. And that was when I fell up here in, in Watertown on ice and fractured my kneecap into six pieces. That was the worst pain I've ever had. Second, second worst pain was the was the pain in my elbow, and um, it was just a searing pain. And I threw two pitches, and I and walked off. And I never was back on the mound on, in a big league stadium until the season of '76. Uh, but um, you know, I, I had no idea what I did. And I think Doctor Job did at the time, but. Um, he just wanted to make sure that he and I were alone in his office the next day and not in the trainer's room before 
players and media and newspaper guys and television, radio guys. You know, back in those days, the Dodger clubhouse was wide open. If you were in there covering a game, you could walk right in the trainer's room and talk to the guy getting rubbed down before the game or if you wanted to talk. There were no barriers in the in the in the locker room. Now, you know, you can't even get a smell of the clubhouse. So right there, right there and then, a day afterwards, is Dr. Job telling you about the possibility of this surgery? Is he suggesting it to you at that point, or is it still just rest and wait at this point? Rest and wait. Um, and I rested uh, three weeks and four weeks, and I came back and I started throwing. And um, I, I was fine as long as I was on flat ground. The minute I got on a pitch surface, uh, boom, that little drag on the elbow opened up the joint. And uh, our trainer, Bill Bueller, taped my elbow up, um, much like it would a sprained ankle. And I could pitch pretty good with that, uh, taped up like that. But I knew that's not the way that you go about pitching in the big leagues. And um, so we sat down, Dr. Job and I sat down after all this. And, you know, what are the pluses? What are the minuses? And um, he said that... Um, I really didn't need, uh, I really didn't need the, um, I didn't need the surgery and I'd be fine. But he said, I can guarantee you, you will not pitch major league baseball again. And I said, okay, uh, if I, you know, what if I don't have it or what if I do have it? Well, he said, I can guarantee you that you might not pitch major league baseball again. He said, I don't know. It's never been done. He said, uh, but you know, it's the tendon transplant has been done in polio patients in their knees and, and ankles to get them to walk again. So the practice was sound. They just had never done it on a pitcher before. At this point, I, I think it's hard for people to realize because athletes get surgeries every day. It's part of life being an athlete. At this point in 1974, surgery was avoided at all costs. Were you hesitant at first? You had to be thinking, well, my career might be over if I don't get it. Was the thought of even having a chance to pitch again the only thing that motivated you to do it? No, uh, because I believed in Dr. Job, And um, I, I knew that he would not uh, tell me something that was uh, that was against um, uh, that was against my best interest, and he was like a father, and you know, he, I mean, he was a surgeon, but it was more like a father's son. He 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 wouldn't suggest anything if he didn't think it was in my best re um, my my best interest. There was obviously no blueprint for a recovery or as to when you may be able to throw again. What was the recovery process like for you? Same as this today. Now, now that's how. This is what I could never get out of Doctor Job. Um, when these guys have it now, they they wait 16 weeks before they start throwing a baseball. 16 weeks. Back in 1975, after I had the surgery, I mean, in '74 it was 16 weeks, and it was the, towards the end of um, January. And he said, okay, now you can start throwing a baseball and just, he said, let your body be your guide. You know, your body will tell you if, if your arm doesn't hurt or doesn't feel good, then, um, um, throw more. If it, if it feels funky, 
don't throw very much. He said, your body will tell you what it needs and how true it, he was. We're now in a time where Tommy John surgery is so common. The surgery that you were the first to have, almost a third of pitchers in major leagues have it at some point. It is crazy in the minor leagues, and pitchers have innings limits and pitch counts, but we're seeing more pitchers need the surgery than ever. What do we actually know are the best ways? What are the best ways at keeping active pitchers healthy? The injury itself is a is an overuse injury, and it's not overuse by throwing 125 pitches a ball game. It's overuse pitching 12 months a year when you were a little boy at 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, and these kids go out and they pitch year-round. They, they pitch more than a major league superstar. And they do it because they've got these programs and these facilities that these guys say, well, you can be on my travel team and this, and I've got this facility and you can work out and we'll work on your fastball and we'll work on this and we'll work on your mechanics and you're, you'll be drafted. And the parents see this as, oh, my God, so-and-so. He, he pitched a year in the minor leagues and he really knows what he's talking about and he's this and that. And they sign them up, and they spend two, three, four thousand dollars a winter uh, with their kids throwing, and um, and it's just an overuse. The and when I give talks to parents, I ask them. I said, "Who's the best pitcher in baseball?" You know, everybody's got their own their own person that they think. And I said, "Do they pitch year round?" Well, no. Well, why not? If pitching year round is so good. Why don't these guys? And and why does your little guy who can't walk and chew gum at the same time, why should he pitch year round? Why shouldn't he, you know? And then you get into schools now. High schools are forcing kids to be one-sport players. If you play football, you only play football. If you play basketball, you're on the basketball program year round. If you play baseball, you know, you you do the program, you do the summer travel teams and then you have a fall workout program and then you got a winter program and then you start up again and there no more can kids be just high school students having fun playing playing sports playing varsity sports and uh, it's it's sad it's sad but it's the way it's the way the sports are going in this country and uh, you know whether you like the guy or you don't like the guy, arguably one of the best baseball players in a long, long, long time is Alex Rodriguez. And Alex, and I coached against him in high school, and he was a uh, quarterback on his football team. He was point guard on his basketball team, and he was shortstop on his baseball team. And he was drafted as the number one player drafted when he graduated high school, I think in 93. So, it didn't hurt him playing three sports, but yet you have these coaches that, oh, no, 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 you, you can't do that. And so you, Alex Rodriguez could no longer be a three-sport player in high school. He would have to be a one-sport player. Would it make him better? Uh, maybe, maybe not. I, I don't see how Alex could be much better, but um, it's just the way that we've come, and it's the travel, travel teams, all the travel teams we play uh, 60 games, 70 games in the summer, and we go to all these tournaments, and we go to the perfect game tournament here, and we go to this tournament there, and 
we go to the Jack of All Trades tournament here, and the scouts will be there, and college coaches will be there. And if you look at statistics, the kids that start playing baseball, if they if they get a scholarship to college, it's very rare because they're just there are not that many scholarships to go around. If they get drafted, it's very rare because there aren't that many kids drafted out of college or high school. If you get drafted, the chance that you move through the system is very, very, very small. And um, you know, there's three, four, four million kids play baseball every year at 10 years of age. And there's 750 that make the major leagues. So if you do a statistical analysis, if you play baseball, you really have a very, very small chance to play much farther than the, the next level. That's just that's just numbers. You mentioned Alex Rodriguez, and before you sort of hinted at, at steroids. And, you know, cortisone is a type of steroid. It's not the same, obviously. But when you right. were later in your career in the '80s, did you start to see anabolic steroids come into the game? No, I well, yes, I did. Um, when I was with the Angels, um, we had a player on our team that was big into weightlifting, and we were talking uh, about weightlifting and all because I was curious. I just, you know, man, you know, if you can get bigger and stronger, maybe help you throw harder and all that. Um, uh, and he was talking about um, there's a, a steroid out there that's undetectable. The the Eastern Europeans use it in the Olympics and you can't detect it. There's not a test out there. And that's the first time I'd ever heard of it. And that was 1983, 84 when I was with the angels back in my day, the PED was amphetamines or as they, they were called back then greenies. God, there was a bowl in one, in one major league clubhouse a bowl on the table of amphetamines. Guys would come by and throw a couple in and go, go on out and play. And, um, and that was given to them by the trainers. Did you ever take amphetamines? Nope. Did you feel like in, using amphetamines was cheating? Uh, yes. Yep. Certainly was. It, it was because they were pumped up. They were, you know, now that doesn't make them bigger, stronger. I don't know. It, uh, truck drivers take it so they can drive 24, 25 hours in a row. Uh, and I know I lost a, uh, a Cy Young award um, when these same sports writers that are that are cutting um, McGuire's testicles off and Sammy Sosa's and Bonds and all that for taking amphetamines voted this guy Cy Young award, and um, they knew that he was taking amphetamines. They knew he did. And yet they, ah, you know, it was not looked upon then as uh, PEDs. Ah, he's just taking greenies, you know. But I, I know all I was taking was Dr. Peppers in between innings. And uh, or maybe certain days I'd be drinking Mountain Dews. But, you know, so I'm out there clean, and, I, and I'm against a guy that's wired on uh, greenies, uh, I don't think it's fair. And there are many players who have used amphetamines, who we know used amphetamines, who are in the Hall of Fame. And yep. the writers have made a line, have drawn a line, that if you've been connected to steroids or even suspected of steroids, that you're not in. So Alex Rodriguez isn't going to get in. We've seen Bonds and Clemens. They're not in. Do you think those guys should be in? I think they will be in. 
but it's going to take a while for them to, um, you know, uh, people forget and they'll lower the barriers. But, uh, you know, um, Mark, Mark Guire was taking what you buy at DNC, you know, and uh, I mean, anybody could take it. Uh, Andrewstein beyond. But, you know, I, I don't know that much about it to comment on, but um, it was, uh, you know, it made some pretty mediocre pitchers, pretty good pitchers, and it made some guys, you know, it doesn't make you a better hitter. And that's what people think. Oh, well, um, he took steroids and he was a good hitter. Well, you, you have to be a good hitter to start with. You take steroids, it makes you a stronger, good hitter. And I told, I was on a show one time with Jose Canseco, and we were talking about it, and I said, Jose, I could pitch against a team that all nine players in the American League or eight in the National League could be on steroids, and all that meant to me is they would hit the ball harder to the shortstop. Doesn't make them a bit better hitter. It just means that they're going to hit the ball harder. Well, you pitched against those A's teams where you might have had all eight guys on steroids anyway. <laughs> it could have very well been. <laughs> Tommy, lastly, if you knew what you know now about your career, what would be different? You know, I've always wondered about about the weights and all that of getting stronger. And I don't know if getting stronger would have made me better. Would it have made me throw harder? Um, I, I think... I think I would really have looked into um, working on a changeup and using a changeup in my in my pitch uh, repertoire, but eh, I, there's not anything I would do. I well, yeah, there is. I would take my golf clubs on the road more and play more golf golf on the road than what I did. You've been listening to Tommy John. Tommy won 288 games over his 26-year career and, of course, was the first player to undergo the surgery now named after him. You can find more about his life, career, and charitable endeavors at his website, TommyJohn25.com. Tommy, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Thank you much. I appreciate it.